Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation will reflect on the geopolitical developments that have unfolded this week and the impacts being felt within the markets. Of course, we'll also touch on the inflation picture here in the U.S. and how this all might influence monetary policy, plus outline how you should consider positioning your portfolio for the current environment. Uh, Joining me here for the conversation this morning, uh, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, uh, good morning, happy Friday, welcome back, and looking forward to our conversation today. Good morning, Dan. So, Jason, thinking back to earlier this week, I know we last spoke on Tuesday. Now, at that point, this was still pre-invasion. And even at that point, investors have been gripped by geopolitical-driven volatility. You think back to the week prior, and that really has only been exacerbated as events have unfolded in Ukraine over the past several days. So, Jason, where do we stand as of this morning, uh, meaning really the scope of sanctions aimed at Russia plus the footprint of the invasion in Ukraine, and should invest Investors anticipate volatile conditions to persist near term. Well, as of this moment, we there are reports that Russian troops have entered uh, Kiev. Uh, the further uh, the incursions into Ukraine in general, uh, what it appears right now is that they may be you know, close to or ready to occupy Ukraine and topple the regime uh, and put in their own government. And, you know, I think that's that's a possibility, and this could happen in a matter of, of days or weeks. Um, so that's kind of what we know on the side of the ground as of this moment. Uh, on Thursday afternoon, you know, President Biden announced additional sanctions on Russia, uh, you know, curtailing you know technology transfer and sale of technology to Russia, uh, sanctions on banks that limit you know, activity and financing of Russian businesses, uh, and also then later in the day, you know, NATO allies also announced additional you know, sanctions and measures. Um, but you know, after the that announcement, you know, the market reaction on and equity markets rallied and moved higher and ended up closing on Thursday in positive territory after starting in a very negative territory in the morning. Uh, which kind of you know, you can infer that from that that the market doesn't believe that ultimately the current sanctions have a lot of economic bites. Um, meaning they, they don't really hit the areas that would inflict the most economic pain for both for Russia and for, for Europe and, and even the US, which is sanctions on energy and commodity exports. Uh, and I think that's kind of why the market sort of, you know, are bouncing a little bit uh, at this point in time. Uh, you know, we don't know how long this is going to last, how exactly it's going to play out, how long the incursion could take, whether, you know, the fresh ultimate does fully occupy Ukraine, what they can be done in a way that doesn't entail a lot of you know, fighting. We don't know the escalation, nor you know, Putin's endgame, if and, and when he does get to the control of Ukraine, like what its intentions are. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. So the market reaction, while positive, I think, you know, needs to be put in context that this is far from an over, and there's certainly much more scope for, for volatility. But at least, you know, kind of based on where we are right now, the markets, rightly or wrongly, are trading as if this is going to be a relatively contained event to Russia and Ukraine, that the economic spillover to other parts of the world, you know, to Europe and to the U.S. in particular, but especially other parts of the world, is going to be, you know, quite limited. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, after being sort of pricing in a, a decent amount of risk premium for how bad this could go, I think some of what's happened in the past, you know, at least, at least the initial reaction has been sort of kind of taking some out of the markets. 
I think we're certainly far from over. I think there'll be definitely more volatility in the coming days and weeks. Thank you for that context and for providing some color into the prospects for geopolitical contagion. And to your point, very fluid situation. I know a point of interest has been energy markets. And this week, WTI crude uh, was nearing that $100 per barrel mark. We've since come down a bit, maybe by $8, $9. But there's a lot of concern over potential disruption within energy supply chain. What are your thoughts there? How could that play out? Well, there's certainly a risk of it, but the, the key thing on this point is neither side, whether it's the Russians or the West, you know, U.S., Europe, uh, have any interest in having sort of a real disruption in this flow of energy. Uh, you know, from a Russia's perspective, the energy sector comprises about 20% of their GDP and 40% of their fiscal revenues. Uh, as of you know, the latest year we have is for 2019. So it's clearly an important component, a very important component of their economy. Uh, and so losing access to that and so losing the revenue, you know, it start to have a pinch, you know, relatively soon. Likewise, for some of the Europeans, you know, the Germans in particular, who rely on your natural gas, cutting off any of the supplies, especially in the winter when, you know, reserves are not going to be, you could be depleted quickly. That could cause severe economic pain. Um, if you add on top of it also other commodities, this isn't just a matter of like, you know, keeping people warm on their health and safety, but also just actual manufacturing and production of the economy. So it would have a clear negative impact on Europe's economy, much less so on the U.S., but there still would be some, some knock-on effects. Um, in the U.S., you know, there's an inflation problem here, and higher energy prices will not be helpful for that regard, especially with the, in a midterm election and when President Biden's approval ratings are, you know, are, are relatively low at this point in time. So neither side has an incentive for this to escalate to the point where energy supplies could be disrupted, which is why the, the first two rounds of sanctions have been clearly avoided that. Uh, whether they would ultimately be put in place in some sense depends at this point probably on how much further you know Russia and President Putin wants to go uh, in terms of escalating it elsewhere. Uh, so to the point of enforcing the West to you know actually take more significant action that would inflict pain on themselves. Right now, I think the you know the, the markets at least are betting that this is not going to happen. I think that that's a fair assessment, given you know what both sides would have to lose if something you know, significantly elevated on that regard. Jason, you have to wonder as this continues to play out. You think about how central banks are fed here in the U.S. and on a local level, local meeting Europe, central banks such as the ECB, the European Central Bank, the BOE, the Bank of England, how they're interpreting this geopolitical risk, and could that serve as a potential needle mover impact to domestic economic activity growth? And in turn, could the trajectory of policy be altered as a result? What are your thoughts there? How do you feel the Fed in particular is interpreting what's unfolding in Europe? So generally, central banks will look through energy price shocks and food price shocks because whenever those happen, you know, the price moves up significantly and then often reverses, you know, relatively quickly, meaning within a few months or say within a year. So if you're a central bank, you know this is going to happen. You see the price jump. You don't want to tighten policy. And then a year later, realize, well, you tighten policy, but now energy prices are falling and you have actually disinflation and you've, tight, you know, and you've gone in the wrong direction. Uh, and historically, we know that these shocks in terms of having a lasting impact on inflation tend to be pretty minimal. So from, from that perspective, given the outlook of inflation in the U.S. where it's elevated and, and this, you know, all the risk of being sticky, instead of beyond what the Fed feels comfortable with, I don't think this alters the Fed's kind of you know, path in any, you know, any significant way. It's clearly it's now an inflation fighting mode. Uh, it wants to hike in March. That's, that's almost a certainty. 
25 basis points is the most likely outcome of the market was thinking it could be 50 basis points, but now it's pricing about a 20% chance of that. So unless something happens between now and March 16th, uh, where the market moves in that direction or the Fed guides it in the direction that we're going to do 50 basis points, that seems unlikely. After that first rate hike in March, I think a series of one hike per meeting is likely, at least for the next you know, three or four meetings after that until we get into the fourth quarter. Uh, also, in the second quarter, either the May meeting or the June meeting, the Fed is likely to announce it's going to begin reducing its balance sheet by letting you know, uh, asset sale or assets kind of roll off once they mature. And that will begin roughly by the middle of the year. As we get into the fourth quarter, I think Fed policy in general, irregardless of what happens exactly in the Russia-Ukraine situation, this becomes a little more outcome dependent. But then they'll see has inflation moderated, uh, you know, has the tightening had an impact on growth and inflation, uh, we'll then kind of make, you know, proceed from there. So where the current situation with Ukraine could matter is, you know, does it alter the Fed's path later on this year if it looks like, you know, either energy prices might be higher or growth is being negatively impacted in some way. So I think it's, ultimately it's not a game changer for the Fed, but it does change things maybe just a little bit at the margin later on this year. And we've already seen a number of Fed governors come out just in the past couple of days saying, you know, they're basically they're comfortable. They still think the Fed needs to be moving 25 basis points. You know, some are saying even still 50. Uh, so that language hasn't changed you know, as the situation in Ukraine has escalated. I think for the ECB, uh, it's a little bit different matter, but they also have a different sort of trajectory in that they're still purchasing bonds. They're likely to continue to purchase bonds through the summer, you know, potentially until the end of September. And the thought was by the market and even some ECB officials is that they would hike maybe for the first time in December. So that's still a possibility, but it's also over nine months away. So they have a lot of time and scope to see how things play out in the geopolitical front, but also on the economic front. I think the margin maybe sort of delays them to do something, but I think it's so far out already with enough uncertainty between now and then on other matters that I think, again, it doesn't really sort of change the central bank story there. Uh, so that's kind of how the central banks will respond. In terms of, kind of, you mentioned kind of the growth and inflation impact, if this ends up being relatively contained to just to Ukraine, I think both are, are, you know, the impact ends up being relatively modest uh, to the point where given the other factors driving growth, uh, and at this point in time, in terms of supply side issues, uh, it doesn't really change the, you know, the overall macro environment uh, significantly. Uh, and that's why I think ultimately the central bank trajectory at this point, given what we know, doesn't really change from what we knew two to three weeks ago. Jason, it was interesting. You brought up inflation a few moments ago. And you think about inflation currently running at multi-decade highs. This has, of course, been a chief concern amongst investors. And inflation headlines, they might have taken a back seat a bit this week, understandably so. Though within the most recent UBS house view, it was interesting. I was reading that the chief investment office expects a peak to soon be reached and conditions with respect to inflation to improve throughout the balance of 2022. Too. So, could you walk us through your thinking there? Well, there's a few reasons why. You know, I think it's a safe call to say that inflation will will peak, and the number for February might be the peak in this cycle. Um, and at least for some you know, measures of inflation, such as CPI, it might be March for other measures, such as core CPI or PCE inflation measures. The reason why is that uh, once we get into the second quarter, the year-over-year kind of price level comparison that determines inflation starts to become easier. So just if you go back to uh, you know, two years ago, around this time when the pandemic was first taking hold, it was March, April, when things really kind of shut down. So prices fell in you know, March to some extent, but definitely April and May of 2020. As things started to kind of recover later that year and into 2021, you had a big jump in prices 
on a year-over-year basis for things like, you know, airfare, travel, hotels, you know, automobiles, used cars. As we move forward now, the comparison is this for prices in April and May of this year is versus last year. So instead of a very low base from 2020, the base is quite a bit higher from 2021. So as we do measure you know, inflation, you know, the price level this year versus last year, that price level comparison gets easier as we move into the second quarter. So that's one reason why, at a minimum, it's safe to say, I think, you know, we probably will hit a peak this month or next month and start to moderate. There's also then, if you look at the different components of inflation that have been driving it higher, such as used car prices, uh, even energy prices, you know, that, that inflationary impulse is going to moderate. You know, so we can talk about energy prices and, the, you know, as we move further this year, Oil prices will, you know, on a year-over-year basis, won't really be changed very much. Whereas last year they went from forty or fifty dollars up to eighty dollars. That that sort of baseline comparison is not going to be there. So some of the measures that are driving inflation, those again also start to become you know less relevant, uh, and it could actually become disinflationary. Uh, another factor is that we're now seeing kind of a widespread lifting of COVID restrictions, and that should help ease some of the supply chain backlogs. Uh, you know, we're already seeing it, some of the data in terms of delivery times, semiconductor shipments, auto production, all that is sort of ramping up. So a few months ago, I would have been on this call to say supply chain issues seem to be kind of plateauing, haven't really improved. Now there's kind of clear evidence that things have improved. A long way to go, and that's going to be a story throughout this year. But as that improves, that should also alleviate some of the the stress that's kind of driving inflation. And a third kind of related factor is that uh, you know, consumption patterns are starting to shift again as the Omicron wave has you know, kind of clearly receded. People are now kind of, you know, stop spending so much on goods. They're willing to get into travel again, spend more on leisure activities, services. It's goods inflation that's driven inflation much higher over the past, you know, year. Service inflation really is not much higher than it was pre-pandemic. So as people stop buying, you know, physical goods and start, you know, taking leisure activities, among other services, you're going to see some almost disinflation on the good side while service inflation stays elevated. Again, that will bring inflation down. So that's why I think the peak is, is near uh, and the inflation should moderate. But there's still a fair amount of uncertainty just how much it will moderate and the magnitude during the rest of this year. That's still highly uncertain. And a lot of that will come down to things like, you know, whether wage inflation stays at a level that it currently is at, which is around 5.7%. Or as COVID restrictions ease, will more people come back to labor force? So at least alleviate some of the kind of the, the supply and demand imbalance on the labor market that's leading to such high wages. Um, also, we're starting to see a little bit of cooling in the housing market and rental market. So the shelter component is a big part of inflation. It operates with a lag, but if we start to see you know, cooling those parts of the market by the end of this year, that should also help to brain and moderate inflation. If it doesn't, well, that's another reason why inflation can stay high. So we're at a peak. But the other side of the mountain, the trajectory, I think there's there's certainly you know sort of unknowns of how steep or fast that will decline. Well, thank you, Jason, for walking us through CIO's inflation outlook. Of course, continues to be an important point of interest for our listeners, our clients. Now, as we begin to close out our conversation for this morning, Jason, the big question becomes: Well, given all of this uncertainty facing us as investors on multiple fronts, how should I think about positioning my portfolio accordingly? How can I navigate best through this environment? I understand that within the house view, a few allocation changes were made. And then maybe further, Jason, when these spouts of volatility present themselves, and I know we've touched on this before, always important to reinforce, what shouldn't investors do during periods of volatility? Well, starting with kind of what they should be doing, uh, the first thing is to kind of stay invested. 
you know, there's been a lot of volatility. The markets have pulled back. But we don't think this is a time where you want to be de-risking. It's a time where you want to stay invested and be kind of selectively looking to add exposure, especially for a number of our investors and clients who've had a fair amount of cash and asking, you know, should we be deploying it? And I, you know, simple answer I'd say is, is yes, um, they should be looking to, to buy. We don't see significant downside from here. And part of the reason why is that if you extra, abstract from the Russia-Ukraine situation and, and believe it, it perhaps ultimately will be self-contained with minimal or relatively modest spillover effects for inflation and growth, the underlying fundamentals for the U.S. economy remain solid. And we saw this with data that was released Friday morning on consumer spending. It beat expectations. This is for the month of January. Durable goods you know, spending also beat expectations. This is at a time when you know, there's thoughts that Omicron will be impacting behavior when spending in December was disappointing, and so there was concerns. All right, you know, consumers getting tapped out. You know, they've used up stimulus checks. You know, other things are going to start to weigh on them. The data that came out suggests no, actually, things are still quite strong there, and you know, the market responded you know, favorably to that. So that's a key part of our thesis is why, even in the next few months, you know, equity markets could get some support because the pessimism that's out there regarding high inflation and you know, growing growth slowing that could start to, to flip a little bit where we'll start to see you know, actually growth is going to be quite solid. It's not being negatively impacted by higher interest rates or, or higher inflation. And going back to the previous question, if inflation is starting to moderate and it's become more clearly evident, I think you know, people will become more comfortable with that environment. And that would provide a support for equities moving higher. So that is kind of you know, the core thesis that we have from a fundamental perspective. And therefore, you should be staying invested and sort of selectively looking for opportunities. That said, as, as part of the House View update, we did make a couple of changes. First, just on the U.S. equity outlook overall, we modified and revised downward our you know, kind of targets for where the S&P 500 is going to be at the end of June and also in December. Uh, prior to this update, we both uh, we expected the S&P to be at 4,900 in June and also at the end of the year. Now we expect it to be at 4,500 4, for June and 4,800 for December. So the bigger decline in the near term just reflects the, the lingering uncertainty from, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine situation kind of went in the markets, you know, for the coming weeks. Uh, and it might take a little while for people to become more comfortable with kind of the growth and inflation environment improving. But ultimately, by year end, I think there'll be more conviction that the, the worst of the, you know, growth and inflation fears that people have will, will have dissipated, will be in a better macro place, and that will sort of drive the S&P higher. Also, earnings should continue to be quite strong. Even though you know your valuations may not expand, earnings growth alone could drive the S&P 500 back to those kind of levels. So that was one change. In terms of our positioning, uh, we did close uh, or reduce our mid-cap equity preference from most preferred to neutral. We've had that on since the spring of, of 2020, but now after well, about 20 months, we think it's time to sort of you know go back to a neutral allocation on mid-caps. Uh, and the reason being is that you get sort of further into the cycle. Uh, out of the recovery, clear recovery and early expansion stage, when mid caps and also small caps that tend to, to outperform, we're now entering a stage, at least mid to like maybe a little bit later stage in the cycle, where large cap tends to you know outperform mid cap. So that's where we've closed the mid cap uh, preference. Uh, it also sort of ties into sort of other recommendations we'll be making regarding you know how to diversify and sort of deal with some of the volatility and uncertainty, which is continuing to like commodities as a way to both play for our base case scenario of global growth and inflation you know, being good, uh, or this growth being good and supportive of commodities because of strong demand and constrained supply. But if we have a situation where that's not the case and growth moderates and inflation remains sticky, 
other asset classes could suffer. So on a relative basis, commodities look attractive. And then if the situation in the Ukraine does you know, escalate its disruptions, energy supply, the price of oil would escalate, well, an allocation of commodities provides a hedge against that scenario. So for a number of reasons, in both base cases and in risk cases, commodities look attractive. And historically, you know, commodities tend to do better later cycle. So in some sense, that's kind of shifting from mid-caps to commodities as a way to move from allocating for something that does well in the earlier stages of the cycle to something that tends to do better in the later stages of the cycle. It also gives that sort of diversification. And I think, you know, the position we have in equities is also consistently moving away from more cyclical components to things that are a little bit higher quality, um, you know, to sort of play off of, you know, some of the uncertainty that's going on in the marketplace overall. Uh, so that's sort of, you know, some recommendations in terms of what people should be doing. I think also just you know, on the point about volatility, it's quite high right now. It's something that causes people to be at least sort of sometimes pull back in the markets. But volatility is effectively an asset class that you can invest, you can buy and sell. And the most kind of direct way you can do it is through options. because so effectively you're, you're making decisions on volatility either rising or falling. Um, but you can use structured products and solutions to also kind of get exposure and maybe hedge some of the more extreme downside scenarios because we don't think the downside from here is that much greater. And sort of pay for that also by maybe reducing some of your upside or kind of capping the upside exposure if you if you don't believe there's you know there's a huge amount of upside. So I think you know sort of taking advantage of that. And your final question about like what investors shouldn't be doing during these periods of volatility, I think it's you know kind of panicking to to you know, you know reducing exposure uh, and sort of deviating from what their long term plan is. So I think it's it tends to be more an emotional environment when it's volatile. When people get emotional, they tend to make bad decisions uh, as opposed to kind of rationally looking at the all the data in front of us deciding, you know, is this an environment where there's still opportunities and where should I should be allocated and try to take advantage of some of this volatility as opposed to being defensive and overly reactive. So I think that's always kind of a core thing is to sort of avoid getting too emotional and staying kind of irrational as you assess the marketplace right now. Jason, very important guidance there. And thank you for taking a few moments to walk us through the current thinking of the chief investment office when it comes to asset allocation. Thinking back to the topics we covered this morning, whether it be geopolitics, economics, monetary policy, of course, a lot there that remains fluid uh, that we can follow up on. So looking forward to continuing our conversation, Jason. So thank you again for dropping by this morning and for providing the insights and guidance that you did. You're welcome. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and their listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including, of course, the publication which Jason has been making reference to during our conversation today, uh, the UBS Houseview publication suite, including the monthly letter from Mark Hafley, Global Chief Investment Officer. A title of that letter is The Test. So for clients of UBS, please be sure to contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about the topics covered on today's podcast or if you would like to receive a copy of the UBS House View directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. 
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.